Dunkin' Holder is brought to you by GameTime, your new go-to app for the best deals on last-minute tickets. Did you know Saints ticket prices tend to drop right before the game starts? GameTime tracks prices in real time from thousands of trusted sellers, then shows you all the best last-minute deals with prices up to 60% off. More than 12 million fans have downloaded the GameTime app and discovered the fastest, easiest way to get into the game. What is that when you jump around and carry on and do the who dat, who dat stuff? Who dat, you know, that's really kind of a, a fan, you know, that's that's our, our, our chant. Duncan Holder Podcast back at you. Larry Holder, Jeff Duncan here with you on the Athletics Podcast Network. Of course, if you're listening to this pod, and you're not a subscriber to The Athletic, A, shame on you. But B, you can certainly listen to this podcast for free on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, rate, subscribe, review, give us all that good stuff here so we can keep this podcast thing rolling uh, for Jeff and myself. Of course, we're going to be talking plenty about the New Orleans Saints as they beat up on the Arizona Cardinals. The bigger story, the return of Drew Brees. And guess what? There is a new number one team in college football, resides up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana State University. Of course, LSU beating Auburn. We'll touch on plenty of that in this week's podcast. But Jeff, let's just start with the more immediate news. Saints beating the Arizona Cardinals 31-9, to certainly something that we expected regardless of who was the quarterback, regardless of it, whether or not Alvin Kamara is going to play. But, of course, the big story, the return of Drew Brees. And maybe out of, say, one or two rusty throws and maybe just a, a mental brain fart by Brees to throw into double coverage uh, with Patrick Peterson lurking around Zach Line on a deep ball that was picked off. Everything else Drew Brees did on Sunday – was vintage Drew Brees, and nothing to see here. Splint on a thumb, no worries. Drew Brees is back, and the NFL better look out. Yeah, Larry, I mean, I thought he was better than even I thought he was going to be. I mean, like you said, it didn't seem like there was really any uh, drop-off at all or rustiness. I mean, I know there were a couple plays, but I don't think there was rust. I just think it was you know good plays by Carolina. Um, he ends up throwing for 373 yards. Uh, you know, that's remarkable considering he's playing with this new thing on his hand. I thought there might be a little bit of an adjustment, but, you know, watching the replay of the game, listening to Rich Gannon talk about it, who I respect a lot, you know, guys played the position. Uh, he said when he went to practice on Friday and saw Breeze throw, he was amazed at, at just how cleanly the ball was coming out, how he was spinning it, and it carried over to the game. So I think it validated the decision by by Breeze and Peyton uh, to play. I know a lot of people were worried about that, uh, but I think no one's worried about it um, today after they saw that performance yesterday. Yeah, and you look at just uh, the way he was throwing passes. It's not like he was throwing a lot of deep balls, but the fact that they threw it 43 times, I think that's a lot. But I think that's also a byproduct of the Saints ran 70-plus plays. Yep. I mean, so that's good. That's going to happen. I mean, you can only run it so many times. I mean, they ran it 29 times. So, uh, But for Breeze to go out there and put the performance like he did, I think that puts a lot of concern to rest. And 
I, I it's funny because you're you're watching Drew Brees in warm up. I, I literally was watching when Sean Payton he's all amped up and giving like triple high fives to people in the stretching line, and he goes up very gently and gives Drew just a little soft dap <laughs> on the right hand. It's like don't hit don't hit the man's <laughs> hand. But uh, but yeah, and and it's funny after the game was over, Drew Brees is saying, "Well, I didn't exactly want like players to like practice and." me hit my hand during the week and and hit it off of a helmet. But he said he he did take maybe a little hit or two, but that's just the nature of playing football. It never affected him. And uh, I think that's the most important thing. Say the Saints win this game and Breeze even struggled. Uh, I, I think the storyline would have been how did Drew Breeze uh, come out of this game and did any of this affect him? And Jeff, uh, I'm, I'm with you. I'm, I'm amazed that he played as well as he did uh, after it admitted he slow, had a little bit of a slow start, just kind of butterflies and getting back into the swing of things. But he said once second half came, he was on fire, and uh, the results show. Yeah, you know, what's, what was an amazing stat in the game is uh, the Saints' lack of scoring on their opening drive. They now have gone 13 games without scoring on their opening drive. Now, they missed a field goal, so that was a little bit of an outlier but they have the longest streak in the NFL of not scoring on their opening drive. They've had nine punts, three interceptions, and now a missed field goal. Uh, and that's really uncharacteristic of this offense. So I think there's it's something that we need to ask Sean Payton about a little bit is uh, are they – we know they script their first 15 plays. How much of that is designed just to get a feel for how they're going to be defended and then they can make the adjustments going forward? How much are they actually – I know they're trying to score, but uh, does that bother him? And and why has that been such a long streak? Because, um, you know, this is one of the most high-powered offenses in the NFL. It's an amazing run now, 13 games without scoring. But otherwise, I thought Breeze, once the second half got rolling, and Arizona's defense, their pass defense is one of the worst in the league. And you knew if Breeze had time, which the offensive line gave him great protection. He was sacked once. Uh, I think hit only three times. That's pretty remarkable considering they've got Chandler Jones and Terrell Suggs. Uh, and you could tell they took took it upon themselves to keep him clean in his first game back with that thumb injury. And once the second half got rolling um, and they got into a rhythm, uh, it was lights out for Arizona. And more on Drew Brees, when uh, you look at just some of the throws that he made uh, – you see the interception, you know he's angry about himself because he knows, and he admitted it afterward, that was just a poor decision. It wasn't just, oh my gosh, the thumb bothered me on a throw. No, uh, because next drive he's back at it, uh, picking apart. And then I think the throw that really looked good was the one where he finds Ted Ginn over the middle for 28 yards and really just kind of chips in the pocket, throws a strike. And it's not like he's out there thinking, oh my gosh, someone's going to hit me. Someone's going to hit my thumb. Uh, It's back to, I'm going to move the pocket. I'm going to climb the pocket. I'm going to make things happen. And it's it's not like he went out there, played worrisome. And he admitted that he just went out there and played. And that's that's what he does. Yeah. And and I think you see the little, some of the little nuanced, subtle differences between him and most other quarterbacks in the league. Forget Teddy Bridgewater for a second, just any quarterback. Uh, you mentioned it, Larry, his ability to feel the pocket pressure and, and Arizona Cardinals players talked about this afterwards. Uh, it's just remarkable. It's an innate feel. It's not something I think you can teach. But there were a number of times where Arizona 
did get some some penetration in the background, and he just slides around. I mean, the the touchdown he threw to Dan Arnold uh, right at the end of that first half that ended up being nullified by a penalty was an incredible play. I mean, he was going to get sacked, and he just kind of climbs the pocket real quick. And unfortunately, he bought too much time because that's what ran the clock out. Uh, But just his feel uh, is just something that you can't teach. Uh, It's it's what's made him one of the all-time greats. And you see the numbers, uh, 373 yards. I mean, that's incredible production. It's one of the – I think he's had 40 games of that many in his entire career. Here he is coming back from five weeks off. He's got this thing on his hand he's not used to having. It's like a medical tape with a a, a kind of a protective splint under it that goes over the knuckle kind of on his thumb. That's got to feel a little weird. And yet he still was able to produce at such a high level. And you really couldn't tell the difference in any way, when he, the way he threw the ball, the way it came out of his hand uh, from a normal Drew Brees game. So I think what you said at the very beginning, Larry, is spot on. I mean, the rest of the NFL now has to be on on alert because the Saints defense is playing as well as it's ever played. And now you've got the leader back in the huddle and the Saints still have some more firepower to get back out there after the bye week with Alvin Kamara, Jared Cook, Traquan Smith, uh, you know Keith Kirkwood. All these guys are on the sidelines. If their offense gets rolling again with the way the defense is playing, I, I don't know anybody that's going to beat this team. Yeah, it certainly looks like the showdown with the 49ers is going to be pretty pivotal, uh, which I don't think I would have said that going into the season, that that would be a game we've got to watch. But I assume that game is going to get flexed. Uh, I haven't looked at the schedule, but I'm sure they're going to have to move that game to a more uh, optimal viewing point for the NFL. And yeah, it's especially look yesterday, what the 49ers whipped up on the Carolina Panthers actually did the Saints a favor, but also, of course, makes that game uh, more important as we get down the line. But Jeff, you mentioned the defense and uh, it's becoming old habit that this defense just shuts down whoever they're playing. It doesn't matter. And to me, one of the more impressive defensive runs uh, really in Saints history, uh, to, to be frank, you look at the numbers and you look at the rushing totals, and I know they didn't have David Johnson and uh, Edmonds got hurt, but still uh, Arizona didn't even attempt to really run the ball because they probably just assumed they couldn't. And then uh, you – Fluster, a rookie quarterback who, sure, he's dynamic in the way he can move and uh, he can certainly fling the ball. But just like they did with Gardner Minshew, they flustered him. They flustered uh, uh, Kyler Murray. And, Jeff, this is just old habit now. Yeah, no one is even, like you said, trying to run the ball. I think opposing offensive coordinators realize, you know, I'm not going to beat my head against the wall here. I'm going to try and pass on the Saints because we can't run it on them. And that's really become a trend now that five straight opponents they've held to less than 100 yards rushing uh, against some good backs. You know, Leonard Fournette came in. I mean, he's one of the leading backs in the league. He, they couldn't move the ball at all on the ground against the Saints. And once they're able to shut down a team's running game and make them one-dimensional, then they can scheme up their pass defense. I, I think we both agree. I mean, the pass defense – if you're going to attack the Saints, that's where you want to attack them. I mean, once you get past Lattimore, you can find some matchups that can be um, – the elite teams can can find some matchups that will be favorable to them. But 
when they become one dimensional, they're, they're able to kind of have the down and distance scenario in their favor. Uh, it's just, they're just very hard to beat right now. They're playing so smart. I asked Demario Davis after the game yesterday, what it is about their run defense. that's so good. And the first thing he said though, was the coaching staff and the scheme and what they're doing in game plan preparation. And that's something I don't think a lot of people realize is just how much goes into stopping another team's running game. It's not just beating your man, man to man at the, at the line of scrimmage. There's a lot that goes into that. So the defensive coaching staff sometimes gets overlooked on this team. And I think those guys, you know, Mike Nolan, Ryan Nielsen, Aaron Glenn, under Dennis Allen, are doing a great job each week of preparing and getting this team to play this great defense. And, and I'll just throw out that one stat that I found this morning. It's the first time now uh, in the, the Saints now have held five straight opponents to 260 or fewer total yards in the game. And that hasn't happened since the Dome Patrol days in 91 and 92. So that tells you just the type of defense the Saints are playing out in a completely different era too, an era that is made for offense and big, big uh, plays. Uh, the Dome Patrol wasn't playing with those rules like like the Saints are playing now, so it's even more impressive. Jeff, don't you know you're not supposed to reveal the names of the defensive coaches because that means other teams are going to come and find Ryan Nielsen and find Aaron Glenn and take them away because they're playing so well. Uh, I feel like we talk about this every week uh, as far as their assistant coaching staff that it's been such a key element to this. And it's still surprising to me that as we keep going and the better the Saints play, it still kind of blows my mind that this staff is still even intact. I mean, it's uh, it's that's intact. Most of the roster is intact. Uh, I think you've got to look at the retention plan on both ends of the coaching staff and player procurement is a huge element to the Saints' success. Well, I don't think this staff is going to remain intact beyond this season. The success the Saints are having, uh, you know, that breeds uh, other teams, other organizations to want to bring in those those pieces that made this team successful. It's going to happen. They're going to get poached. Uh, it's unusual that this group has stayed together as long as it has, and it's been a I think an underrated factor why they've had such success on both sides of the ball, the stability, not only in the coaching staff, but also in the roster. Uh, Most of those guys on that defense, Larry, were here last year. I mean, there's only a few guys that weren't here a year ago. So they've been together a long time, and I think that makes it easier for them to game plan week to week. Absolutely. And it just shows that even – even within maybe a coaching decision or two on the Saints, like at the end of the first half when uh, the Saints can kind of boggle the brain by not clocking it and trying for a field goal, that they're able to overcome these things uh, because basically they feel like they can lean on scheme and lean on the defense and uh, you could take some chances. But Jeff, uh, let's be honest about this game in particular. Cliff Kingsbury... He might have a thing or two to learn about coaching. Uh, Going forward on fourth down, deep in his own territory, only down by four. I get like analytics might tell you, you might have a 63% chance of getting a first down. Uh, When you're going up against the Saints defense and you're going to run it without your big time running backs, uh, that was a recipe for disaster. And that was the game changer. Yeah, you know, I had less trouble with him going for it than the call he made when they went for it. You know, just what you said. You don't have David Johnson. 
you're running into the teeth of a Saints run defense that's already proven it's one of the best in the league and has shut your run game down to that point. Why wouldn't you, say, take a play-action fake, throw a little quick pass to a fullback or a tight end, or use Kyler Murray and use his mobility to roll him out, maybe maybe get outside? I mean, I just thought that was not a very creative, smart call uh, beyond the decision to go for it deep in your own territory because there was no way they were going to line up and run the ball between the tackles on the Saints. It just was not going to happen. So I thought that was really dubious uh, decision-making once he decided to take the risk. I'm sure Sean Payton was grinning <laughs> yes. when they decided to make that call and saying, uh, look, I've gambled and rolled the dice. What are you doing? Hey, buddy, why don't you maybe at least do a fake punt? Or maybe that's too obvious. I don't know. But still, that handed the game over because uh, that's when Saints took advantage of the short field, scored a touchdown, game over, and then the Saints really started rolling. And uh, you combine the defense and Drew Brees' stability at quarterback. And then another element that uh, we should talk about, Latavius Murray running the football. I mean, you add all that up together, and it's been such uh, – that that was going to be game over, and it was for the Arizona Cardinals. But, yeah, I'll just kind of tease uh, a column that I have that's going to be published today at The Athletic about Latavius Murray. And, Jeff, back-to-back 100-yard rushing performances from Latavius Murray, back-to-back 30-touch outings for Latavius Murray. Uh, that doesn't happen for a running back. And I'm talking uh, even Alvin Kamara. That's only He's only done that once in his career uh, where he's had 30 touches or more in a game. And to me, uh, it's pretty remarkable how Plug and play. Teddy Bridgewater comes in, plays well. Latavius Murray comes in, plays well. The way that the Saints have been able to kind of mix and match when things could be disastrous, to me, uh, is probably the number one storyline of this team for this season. Well, I think it's validating the genius of Sean Payton, for sure. Uh, We've always seen that, right, in the past. It uh, doesn't seem to matter who the skill position players are on this team. They just plug and play whoever comes in there. They tailor the game plan to their offensive strengths. And it also worked with Drew Brees. I mean, it's amazingly, uh, they were able to win five games without him. Uh, but Murray, I-, I tell you, I was not that impressed with his career in Minnesota when I watched him play. But it just shows you as well that once you get guys into this system and they they they're ha- they have you run the plays that you're good at. I mean, they're not asking Latavius Murray to run sweeps to the outside. You know, you just don't see that. They have him running for the most part between the tackles on these, you know, design runs that that accentuate his running style. It's just it's just such smart coaching and it sounds so simple, but you just don't see too many staffs do it as well as the Saints do it. And uh Murray's carried the load. You mentioned the 30 touches. That doesn't happen very often in the Saints. I think you you have stats on that. But, I mean, very rarely do you see a guy with shoulder that much of the workload in the Saints offense. It's more of a spread-the-ball-around type of offense. But right now they're down so many bodies, they needed Murray to carry the load, and he's responded. Yeah, in the Sean Payton era, uh, the a Saints running back has tallied 30 touches or more in a game uh, seven times before this back-to-back stretch by Latavius Murray. And it happened with Kamara once. 
Pierre Thomas once, Reggie Bush once, and Mark Ingram four times. And I think that is uh, something you got to connect the dots here with because we were all wondering if Latavius Murray would be capable of replacing Mark Ingram. I mean, that's the trade you did, basically. Not necessarily a trade uh, literally, but a trade-off when Mark Ingram goes to Baltimore and you bring in Latavius Murray. You're hoping he could fill the Mark Ingram role. And when he's been asked to do it, he's now shown, I'd say, for three weeks because I feel like he had an elevated role against Jacksonville and uh, in his limited touches there actually played up to date. That was his best game. And now, of course, he's put together these two games. And it's something that, boy, it's... You go to the player personnel department, they trust their gut, they trust that this player can come in and fill that void, and you got to give kudos to uh, the Terry Fontenot's of the world, pro player personnel, with Mickey Loomis as well, coaching staff, and of course the player, because uh, you know it's something that he's kind of been cast off and uh, wondering where he's going to play and knowing he's going to be coming in here as the number two back, and uh, in a pinch... He's thrived. Yeah, and you know he he's a lot better all around back than I thought. I mean, he's gotten involved in the passing game. What he had five fifty uh, something yards receiving yesterday. He caught his first career touchdown pass. That was something he didn't do a lot of in college at Central Florida. And it's still, I think, safe to say it's still a work in progress. He's not Alvin Kamara like out of the backfield, but he's capable there. He's a threat now and. That just continues. I mean, now when you look at this team coming back, uh, they said on the broadcast, the CBS broadcast, that Kamara could have played on Sunday against the Cardinals. If this were like a playoff game, he would have played. So that means he's close to coming back. We'd expect him back after uh, the bye week. Now you, you get Kamara back and you've got Murray. I mean, you really do have a, a one-two punch in the backfield. And this offense is going to be scary uh, in the second half of the season. Yeah, I think that's the good byproduct of this too, Jeff, that Latavius Murray was able to get out there and play. And when you get to the second half of the season, teams preparing for the Saints aren't going to be fully expecting what could be coming because Latavius Murray, look, he caught nine catches, nine passes in this game. The last two weeks, he's caught 14 balls. Jeff, he was the primary back for the Vikings in 2017. He caught 15 passes the entire year. So it's a totally different wrinkle for someone like Latavius Murray, who hasn't really been asked to do that this much in his career. But when he's in the game, you could put Murray and Kamara in the game at the same time. And you and if Kamara's spread out wide and Murray's, say, standing next to Breeze or just a deep back or something, you don't know necessarily what's coming anymore. So I think the whole byproduct of this is that, uh, and it's just like Teddy. If you think, if you need Teddy in a pinch, he could deliver. If you need Latavius Murray, he can deliver. So it's amazing how uh, through adversity, uh, some of these players have been able to jump up and elevate their play and just given the Saints another wrinkle within uh, this team that should scare other teams in the NFL. Yeah, and the way the offensive line's playing, Larry, I mean, uh, that's a big part of it. They're blocking so well in the run game. There were some beautiful holes yesterday, some 
Very, and, and I would say this, Sean Payton mentioned it after the game, and this definitely gets overlooked by all of us. Uh, the the pass receiver, the receivers are blocking well. The tight ends, when I watch the replay of the game, I mean, a guy like Austin Carr, fans all the time want to know, why does Austin Carr even play? How does he make the roster? Go back and watch the replay of the game and watch that guy block. I mean, some of those big runs where Murray's getting to the second level, he gets to the second level because of a key block by number 80. Uh, a guy that's not that big, but just knows his assignment, gets leverage, and makes key blocks downfield. This is a team right now that's starting to fire on all cylinders. That was over 500 yards offense yesterday. I know Arizona is not a dominant defense, but when you see Breeze spreading the ball around like he did to nine receivers, you got the running game going with Murray, and you've got all these other key parts on the sideline watching. When those guys come back, those playmakers, Kamara, Cook, Smith, Kirkwood, I mean, I don't know very many teams. When you look at that schedule in the second half, um, the Saints are going to probably be favored in every game in the second half of the season. Uh, and the way the defense is playing, I don't know anybody that's going to beat them. I mean, I think they could easily end up 15-1 and one on the season. 15-1, and one, my goodness. And, of course, the one game was the game when Drew Brees gets hurt. Right. <laughs> it's, 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 it's pretty crazy. Imagine if he was healthy. They – you look at the Rams, and they they definitely had a shot to win that game. But, Jeff, we are 20-something minutes into this podcast, and yet we have yet to mention uh, one of the more prolific players in the NFL. I would argue he should be mentioned at least in the MVP race, and that is Michael Thomas. 11 catches, 11 targets, 112 yards, touchdown and he is just who he is and it's become almost breeze-esque in that Mike Thomas double-digit catches 100 yards a score ho-hum no big deal you should expect it and Jeff he is playing I know he played remarkable last year but given the changes at quarterback and Everything that's gone down with the attention placed toward him. You miss Alvin Kamara for two games, and Kamara wasn't really the same guy uh, in a third game. And you thought Jared Cook would be a compliment to him, and he really hasn't been. The fact that Michael Thomas is playing this great is almost surreal. Well, Larry's on pace for 146 catches and what is it? Let's see, 1,750 yards. I mean, that's insane numbers. That's all-time record numbers. There's been a lot of great receivers in this game. None of them have ever had numbers like that at the midway point of the season. And I, I'm just dumbfounded every week how he keeps producing. You know the other team comes into the game and has to have a game plan to stop him. And, and it might also go back, in addition to his incredible ability, but also the Saints – offensive scheme, their ability to move and shift and get him into positions to where he's open. Because there were a couple of times yesterday where, you know, it would be a key third and seven and, you know, the crowd's, you know, amped up and then he just is wide open. I don't understand how it happens, but it happens routinely uh, that they get him in a one-on-one matchup and he's going to win every time. He's such a good route runner. He's so strong. He's got such a big catch radius. He never drops a pass. Uh, and when Breeze is back there, you can see the accuracy of putting the ball in the right spot. Uh, yeah, you could make a, certainly a strong case of any receiver in the league that he would certainly be MVP worthy 
I don't know if it'll ever go to a receiver, though. Unfortunately, this game's become such quarterback-driven, but he's making a case to be back-to-back all-pro for sure. And at least on this team, you would argue he could be the most valuable player because he's gotten uh, Breeze out of a pinch. He gets Teddy Bridgewater out of a pinch. It doesn't matter who's throwing him the football. And I think that is a huge element to this because, Jeff, if you can uh, kind of think back to some of the performances of Teddy Bridgewater, sometimes Teddy throws a ball that's difficult to catch. Sometimes he throws it high and it's not the same on-point kind of ball that maybe Drew Brees throws, and he still catches everything anyway. And so it's really uh, something to watch. And I'm curious to see going forward – Uh, We're going to see after the bye week, they have the four-game stretch of all division opponents. They know what's coming. I'm wondering if they deploy some sort of different strategy in defending him because they're used to it. But, I mean, he's playing lights out right now. So you got to do something to try to take this guy uh, away from the uh, offensive game plan if you're an opponent. Well, and I noticed yesterday they got Dan Arnold a little more involved and Deontay Harris a little more involved. And I don't think that was by accident. I think Sean Payton and the staff realized they've got to get some other people involved on the perimeter to take some of the pressure off of Thomas. I mean, he has 73 catches. The second leading receiver on the team is Alvin Kamara, who was 33, and he's missed two games. Then you go to Latavius Murray's the third leading receiver. He's a backup running back. You have to go all the way down to Ted Ginn with 20 at the next receiver. On the list. So they've got to find someone in that receiver group. Maybe when Smith and Kirkwood come back, they get a little more production there. But the fact that Thomas has 73, the next guy has 33 is just incredible. And uh, yeah, it's a tribute to his productivity because you know the opposing team has got a bullseye on his number 13 jersey every game plan, and he's somehow still producing. Absolutely. Uh, We'll look ahead into. Uh, maybe our uh, our assessment of the second half of the season. We'll do that uh, in uh, some of our Duncan Holder podcasts kind of uh, later on down the line uh, because, of course, the Saints have a bye week. Uh, then they come back week 10 and take on Atlanta. And so perfect midpoint for a bye week. So perfect midpoint of the season. Of course, the Saints have played eight games, seven and one. So uh, we'll do a lot more of looking ahead uh, as far as Saints schedule and what to expect. Uh, we'll do that in, in some of our later podcasts. But, Jeff, let's shift gears. Uh, and it's funny, we are about almost 30 minutes into this podcast, and we have yet to really talk about the number one team in the country in college football. That's LSU. And, Jeff, let me just throw this out there because someone brought this point up to me in the interview area uh, when we were about to talk with Ed Ogeron after LSU's win over Auburn. Would you have guessed that uh, at this point, in with Ed Ogeron being the coach, if you would have said two years ago, do you think he'd ever have a team number one in the country? Uh, I, of course, you'd say no. And so the fact that they've gotten themselves uh, up to this point, of course, they're number one in the AP poll, number two in the coaches poll. Alabama's number one in the coaches poll and number two in the AP poll. Uh, but the fact that LSU has gotten there, uh, with Ed Ogeron and all the uh, kind of the twists and turns, to me is a, a remarkable thing in and of itself because it's the first time they've been this high uh, in the rankings since 2011. And it's a credit 
to Ed Ogeron because he single-handedly has made the tweaks and the adjustments needed to get LSU back among the elite of college football. The, the things that were holding the program back in the end of the Les Mile era have all been addressed. He's fixed the special teams by bringing in Greg McMahon. He's fixed the offense by bringing in Joe Brady and obviously recruiting an elite quarterback like Joe Burrow. Those decisions have launched LSU back to become an elite program. They, they were not ever going to get there without those decisions being made by Ed Ogeron. I think it's easy to underestimate Ed Ogeron. He's got the, you know, the funny way of talking, you know, he's from down on the bayou. It's easy to kind of underestimate him. It's very similar, Larry, to Bobby Bear, right? We've been around Bobby so much in our lives, and those guys are good friends, used to be roommates. But don't make the mistake of thinking that they're not intelligent people, inherently intelligent. And Ed Ogeron is showing that. He's he's kind of wily like a fox. He lets people think he's the, the goofy old Cajun from down the bayou, but that guy's sharp. And what he's done to the LSU program, I think, has put them back in the mix now for national championships that they weren't ever going to get to at the end of the Les Miles era. So, yes, it's a credit to him, and they deserve it. I think anybody would say they're pro, they're, they played the toughest schedule among the elite teams in the country right now, and it sets up a huge game in two weeks against Alabama. I can't wait for that one. Yeah, and you'll be covering that one up in Tuscaloosa and then making the drive back quickly to come and do – Saints-Falcons the next day. Godspeed to you. I will uh, thankfully be uh, at a buddy's house watching the LSU-Alabama game. I'm, uh, and I'm good with that. All right, Jeff. So you can uh, you can deal with double duty. Yeah, you week. did but, it. No, you did it this weekend. <laughs> you did it. And you, had, right. you had a much more difficult assignment because, in my opinion, because uh, you had to turn around and come right back. Like, at least it's a 2.30 kickoff, right? I mean, for both games. Those night games at Tiger Stadium are on the road, then you turn around and try and get back to the Superdome by noon kickoff, that, that's the toughest double duty. We've probably each done that multiple times in our careers. Absolutely. But uh, no one wants to hear about us whining and complaining. It's good football, but you look at uh, what LSU, uh, how they played against Auburn, and I think Joe Burrow's assessment after the game was pretty spot on. I mean, look, this, this guy it tells it like it is, and I think everyone can appreciate that. He looks at the stats and says, wow, we have 500-plus yards of offense and we only put up 23 points. Uh, This was a weird game. And so the fact that LSU played a weird game and it was a closer game than probably they expected. Look, there was a score at the end and Auburn was still in it. And uh, The fact that uh, they played kind of a grinded-out kind of a game uh, to where it wasn't some blowout or offensive shootout, I think that they couldn't have asked for anything better to prepare themselves for Alabama. Uh, being able to play uh, you know, a, a defensive front like Auburn's, and you've got to try to protect Joe Burrow and try to get the running game going, which they were certainly able to do uh, with Claude Edwards-Alaire. But uh, a grinded game right before Alabama, I think that's exactly uh, what everyone should have hoped for because they'll be battle-tested, ready for Alabama. Yeah, Auburn's very similar in some ways to Florida. They're kind of carbon copy teams to me, kind of defensive-dominated, uh, somewhat limited quarterback play for different reasons. But Auburn came to play, man. They, they, they gave LSU all they could handle early on. That defensive front is 
as good as advertised. Derek Brown was throwing 300-pound guys around like ragdolls. It was amazing. Uh, I can see why he's a top-10 prospect. And you're right. I think LSU kind of – it was just a weird game early on, and they finally kind of got their bearings. And I think the key for them now is that the offensive line is starting to play better, opening up enough uh, holes on the ground for Clyde Edwards-Alaire to get some yards on the ground to balance off that offense – uh, and they're going to have to do that when they go down to Alabama. It's going to be a really hostile game, a hostile environment. Uh, Joe Burrow, though, is the kind of guy you want going into that environment. Uh, I think he's going to rise to the occasion, and he has a chance now to validate and crown his Heisman campaign, winning a game on the road against a team that this program has not beaten, what, eight straight times now they've lost to Alabama. Uh, that would be the crowning achievement in his career and certainly make him – uh, the lead candidate for the Heisman, which would be incredible, Larry. I mean, LSU having a Heisman Trophy quarterback, uh, it's never happened. And uh, I think it's got a great chance of happening now. Yeah, if there's a quarterback in the country who could go to Tuscaloosa and win, I think everyone would circle one guy, and it would be Joe Burrow at this point. Not Jalen Hurts. Uh, maybe maybe Justin Fields, maybe. But I, I don't know if I would totally – throw him in that category either, even though Ohio State's really on a roll. And by the time we actually get to LSU, Alabama, Ohio State might jump Alabama in the polls. They, they might jump LSU for all I know because of the way they're playing. But still, uh, if there's one quarterback you want in the entire scope of college football to go to Alabama and potentially win a game, it would be Joe Burrow. And, and Jeff, I do think, though, that the fact that they faced a little bit of adversity within the game against Auburn is going to help. Look, they struggled in the red zone. They had to play field position. Uh, you know, you, you have a turnover on, on, a, on a fumbled punt, uh, but then well, by Stingley, and then yet Stingley comes up and makes an interception. I think the fact that they haven't had to deal with a lot of adversity in a, in a non-shootout type of game, uh, you know, as far as, say, Florida, that was high scoring. Texas, that was high scoring. But to face a little bit of adversity and kind of a little bit of a gut check, uh, I think that this is totally big-time beneficial for LSU. Yeah, it's going to go a long way when they get into what's surely going to be a couple of bigger games down the road. And I think the other development we haven't talked about, Larry, was the fact that Oklahoma lost on Saturday to Kansas State. That was a shocker. And that now, I think, gives LSU and Alabama, whoever loses the game on uh, Saturday in two weeks, it gives them the comfort in knowing and that they can drop that game and still be probably in the mix as long as they run the table the rest of the way uh, in the college football playoff Final Four. And that was a huge development because if you're looking at it right now, four teams have separated themselves, LSU, Alabama, Clemson, and Ohio State. Uh, and the loss by Oklahoma to a Kansas State team that's mediocre, uh, it's not going to hold up you know, when you have the litmus test compared to, say, Alabama, LSU, and the fact that they will have lost one of them to each other. So that was a huge break for them. And, and now I think LSU uh, certainly uh, has to think that even if they lose, as long as they're competitive in Tuscaloosa, they're still going to have another chance to win a national championship. And – you think back about the way LSU was playing going into Alabama last year, and it was almost, and it's kind of a, the way I framed my column after the 
LSU-Auburn game. It's almost like they were just happy to be there last year, be in the moment. Okay, maybe we can upset Alabama. They lose 29 to nothing, and uh, that score, uh, I felt like, 29 nothing was like 50 to nothing. Like the LSU wasn't going to be able to do anything against Alabama. And uh, it's a different mindset with this team. And there's going to be a lot of hype. And we have, let's see, at least three more podcasts until we actually get to that game, Jeff. So we're going to be talking about this a lot too, just you and me uh, within the Duncan Holder podcast. But uh, this is uh, the time when you could maybe your focus could stray off and your head's in the clouds and you're, you're hearing game of the century 2.0. And yet I feel like that this LSU team uh, is far more equipped this year to deal with all this than they were a year ago. Yeah. And I think it goes, goes to Joe Burrow. I think he gives LSU a puncher's chance to go down there and win that game. He's playing so well. He's so mentally tough. I mean, he, he was tough in that game against Auburn, Larry. I mean, there were a couple of times where he took some big hits, popped right back up. I mean, the guys got the mentality you want at quarterback. And this, uh, I think back to when they got him and how far they've come. If you think about it, it was about 16, 17 months ago. They were looking at either Miles Brennan, Justin McMillan, or Lowell Narcisse at quarterback. They had no prospects committed, and they had kind of a – primitive Stone Age offense, and in a year and a half, the transformation of the perception and the culture of LSU football has changed dramatically, and it all started with the recruitment of Joe Burrow, getting him to buy in and then them making the change of the offense, and now they have a shot at, at winning it all, and that all goes back to Ed Ogeron. Absolutely. So we'll have plenty to talk about with that in the next couple of weeks. Uh, of course, LSU is on a bye week as well, so they'll be resting up uh, watching the rest of the college football scope uh, like us and waiting for the inevitable one versus two, we think, if the polls change, oh well. Mono y mano, LSU-Alabama in Tuscaloosa uh, a week from Saturday night. So that's going to wrap up this edition of the Duncan Holder podcast. And I was teasing uh, with Danielle, our incredible producer that Jeff, I love me some me. So guess what? I'm going to promote me. Yes. <laughs> Stunning. I know. I'm stunned. Oh baby. Stunned. If you follow the lead, which is our free podcast on the athletics podcast network, I'm on it today. I talk about Teddy Bridgewater, the backup quarterback. And of course, look, the lead, uh, it's one of the best sports podcasts in and around the podcast sphere, you'd say. I'd say it's the first daily sports news podcast that covers everything from the world stage to the hometown. The Athletic, of course, home for the best storytelling in sports, uh, despite me and Jeff, our existence. And Wondery, the company behind Sports Wars and Gladiator, they take you behind and beyond the box score with the help of The Athletic's more than 400 sports writers and editors, co-hosts, Kavitha Davidson and Anders Kelto dive deep into the biggest and most fascinating stories of the day. Uh, Every day this podcast comes out, and the one that's out today is about the phenomenon of the NFL backup quarterback and specifically the story of Teddy Bridgewater and the success he's had. And if you were in the Dome yesterday or listening on TV, 
Uh, I even think Jeff was chanting, Teddy, Teddy. I think Jeff got Teddy fever. Well, he is a Louisville, former Louisville Cardinal, Larry. So you would expect Now you're him. claiming him. You would expect Now you're him. claiming him. I've man, always claimed him. I've always claimed my man, Teddy. But that was a great moment, wasn't it? I mean, it was, you know, this season is kind of slowly becoming more and more special. And I thought that's one of the moments we'll all remember uh, at the end of this season was was that. Uh, and Teddy kind of chagrined. He's he's kind of an unassuming guy for a quarter, starting NFL quarterback. And you can kind of tell he didn't like having all the attention on him on the sidelines, but it was it was a cool scene. Yeah, I I said uh, in my column last week that they win the Super Bowl. Teddy should be on the Muse's high heel float because he allowed the glass slipper not to crack. See, that is good word smithery by me, Jeff. That's why you get Learn paid something. the big bucks, Sir Lawrence. I like that line. I don't think. I don't think word smithery is even a real word. So on that note, that's going to wrap up this edition of the Duncan Holder Podcast. If you're listening to us, of course, you are a subscriber to The Athletic. Uh, if not, do so because you could also listen to this podcast, Apple, Spotify, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. So rate, review, subscribe. And our next podcast, that is behind The Athletic Paywall. That will come out on Thursday. So if you want to catch it, Join The Athletic, either theathletic.com slash New Orleans, theathletic.com slash Duncan Holder. So for Danielle, our producer, for Jeff, I'm Larry. Thanks once again for listening to the Duncan Holder Podcast. 